Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussion Podcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $3 a month or $25 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for this chance to be with you today. I want to talk to you about Revelation and LDS prophets. And I hope this episode will actually be, actually be pretty quick. Uh, I expect this to be maybe half an hour, 35 minutes. I, I simply want to say that we've been set up within Mormonism to define prophets a certain way to perceive uh, what a prophet is in, in a certain kind of definition. And if I go to LDS.org and I look at their gospel topics section and I look up the word prophets, as, as, uh, as a member of the church, I'm instructed to see a prophet a certain way. And I have to say, like, that definition, I think, has been maybe somewhat watered down, and I think rightly so, and I want to show you today what I mean by that by using three quotes from Elder Oaks, and if we went to LDS.org, we look up the word prophets, there's the definition, it says, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we are blessed to be led by living prophets, inspired men, called to speak for the Lord, as did Moses, Isaiah, Peter, Paul. Nephi, Mormon, and other prophets of the scriptures. Now, I think it's interesting here that the the examples that we use, Moses, Isaiah, Peter, Paul, Nephi, Mormon, they are, they had more supernatural things kind of happen, and to some extent, they spoke to the Lord face to face, or they saw angelic visitors. It, it feels like when I read this, web page on on the church's website i feel like i'm being encouraged to see prophets in a certain way that these men speak directly to god that they get instruction directly from god from his lips to their ears and they then go out into the world and instruct it continues it says we sustain the president of the church as prophet seer and revelator the only person on the earth who receives revelation to to guide the entire church. Now, I don't know if this webpage has always been worded this way, but think about that. President Monson is the only person on the earth who receives revelation to guide the entire church. So we, I think we used to frame prophets as they receive revelation for the entire world that they are like Moses, Noah, and Abraham who spoke directly to God, that these men have some kind of higher experience with the divine. And this statement for me feels watered down from the way I used to hold prophets, that the prophet of the LDS church is a man who receives revelation to guide the entire church. 
And, and I don't think whether you believe literally in all the claims of the church or whether you are a progressive or post-Mormon, I think we all would agree here that Whatever revelation is, a good feeling, a hair raising on the back of your neck, a, a new thought inside your head, the, a gentle, a gentle nudge to, to do something different in your life, that President Monson is the only person on the earth who receives revelation to guide the entire church. And once you see like, oh, that's not really making any kind of extreme claim. Then it continues, it says, like the prophets of old, prophets today testify of Jesus Christ and teach his gospel. They make known God's will and true character. They speak boldly and clearly, denouncing sin and warning of its consequences. At times, they may be inspired to prophesy of future events for our benefit. So essentially, look, they're going to bear strong testimony and they're going to try and make known God's will and his true character. And, and I should take out the word try. They, the, the document here says they make known God's will and true character. They speak boldly and clearly. Now, I, I, I simply want to like back up here from a, for a moment and say like in our heads, we form a certain theology. We form a certain way of saying like, if someone says, what is a prophet? And you say, uh, here's what my church has told me to tell to, here's how my church has told me to articulate that. And, and yet if I back away from that, and I just say, what is my lived experience? My lived experience is that the prophet of the LDS church gives the softest, fluffiest talks at general conference. And I'm, my experience is limited. My experience is limited to President Hinckley and to President Thomas S. Monson. When I look at those two men, I see general conference talks that are just nice and kind and love your neighbor and be good and here's a poem and nothing bold and clear and defining God's will and true character, denouncing sin and warning of its consequences. I see much more the, the other 14 men picking up the slack on that. And, and it also says at times, at times they may be inspired to prophesy of future events for our benefit. We should recognize again, let go of the, how you would articulate it in your head. And pay attention to just your lived experience and ask yourself, how often do prophets, seers, and revelators in Mormonism prophesy, see, and revelate? And the reality is it's not often. And and we have to go back a hundred years to find the last canonized revelation. We have to pick out little things like changing missionary ages to justify the expectation that in our heads we've placed on these men. And what I'm suggesting is that the church seems to be saying, look, I, like we've, we've framed this a certain way and that way isn't holding up so well. So we're beginning to step back and distance ourselves from that strong wording. And we're beginning to take a different approach. The document continues though. It says, we can always trust the living prophets. Um, again, let go of what you want to think inside your head and look at the history and your lived experience and ask if that's the case. And I'm not saying can we trust them as good people trying to do the best they can. 
I'm asking, can we trust them that when they declare the will of God as they decide it is the will of God, does it turn out to actually be the will of God? And I think our history paints a different picture. It says, their teachings reflect the will of the Lord who declared, what I, the Lord, have spoken, I have spoken, and I excuse not myself. And though the heavens and the earth pass away, my word shall not pass away, but shall all be fulfilled, whether by mine own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. But it also leaves out Joseph Smith having said that a prophet is only a prophet when he is acting as such. And the way in which we decide when a prophet is a prophet gets really complicated when you look at Brigham Young and his teachings on Adam God, when you look at our disavowed teachings of past doctrines of race and priesthood and temple ban with those of color, you begin to realize like, oh, prophets don't always know when they've discerned the will of God and when they haven't. And because we don't know, because as we as members of the church don't have a a perfect ability to decide by the Holy Ghost when they've spoken as prophets, and they don't have a perfect ability to discern when they have spoken as prophets, I think it is unfair to limit this paragraph as strictly as they do. Our And it continues, our greatest safety lies in strictly following the word of the Lord given through his prophets, particularly the current president of the church. Again, that's a complicated, messy teaching if you actually want to dive into it and say, how do we know? when it is the word of the Lord or when we have discerned incorrectly or when the prophet has discerned incorrectly. And I'm going to counter this a little bit by saying, I find it best when I trust my gut on what is the will of the Lord. And I allow the words of prophets and other wise voices to speak and to hear it and to listen, and to weigh it. But at the end of the day, I'm going to go with my gut on what is the word of the Lord, and that's how I'm going to make decisions in my life. And when a prophet or president of the church stands up and he teaches something, I will hear it, I will listen to it, I will weigh it, but I will not automatically assume that what he has said is God having spoken to him in some way, shape, or form, and him relaying that teaching. My lived experience, my understanding of church history, doesn't allow that. And so I have to come up with a new way. It continues for a little bit, sharing a couple little scriptures. Um, it does share this, the, the, the phrase, For his word ye shall receive, as if from mine own mouth, in all patience and faith. Patrick Mason and others have pointed this out. When the Lord says you need to receive the prophet's word in patience, I think it's speaking to the fact that this is not going to always work out the right way. That prophets were overreach at times, and hence the need for us to be patient. And, and again, I think all of us are better served if we develop in our lives into a place where we claim back our inner authority. And and not all of us are there. Some of us are in earlier stages of development where we need an outer authority. And if we don't have the rules and guidelines laid out by somebody whom we trust to be the voice of God, 
then our life literally falls into chaos. Not that we are scared into believing it will fall into chaos, but that it will fall into real chaos. And when someone moves into later stages of development, they no longer need those rules and boundaries spelled out. They no longer need an outer authority to trump their inner authority. And and it's my hope that like everyone could work into that later stage where they claim their own voice. They claim their own understanding of God and what his expectations are and what is morality and, and to live into that. I, I want to say too, there's a, there's a couple of quotes here I want to share. So we'll go right into, uh, the first one. And again, these are all three from Elder Oaks and then we'll talk about each of them. And again, I just want to apologize. The audio is not the greatest of quality, but that's, you know, it was essentially each of these were recorded by somebody in the crowd and not, um, not professionally done at the pulpit. So again, I apologize, but here's Elder Oaks. My question is, what should we pray for to receive the same testimony, if not conversion, that all of you have experienced for our friends that are Thank you. I missed the words of Alma the Younger, uh, without which I couldn't understand that very fine question. What should you pray for to have the kind of experience that Alma the Younger had? I don't think you're likely to have the kind of experience that Alma the Younger had. Remember, he had a miraculous appearance of an angel and, uh, and really got hit over the head spiritually. Most of us don't have that kind of experience. But I interpret your question, Heather, as being how can we get the kind of, of uh, testimony that he received. I don't think we'll, we'll get it like Paul did on the road to where the angel appeared to him or where Alan the Younger had a startling experience. Uh, the Lord gives a few of those kinds of experiences and they're recorded in the scriptures to catch our attention and the answer. But I've never had an experience like that. I don't know anyone among the first presidency or quorum of the twelve who had that kind of experience. Yet every one of us knows of a certainty the things that Alma knew. But it's just that unless the Lord chooses to do it another way, as he sometimes does, for millions and millions of his children, the testimony settles upon us gradually like so much dust on the windowsill or so much dew of the grass. One day you didn't have it, and another day you did, and you don't know which day it happened. That's the way I got my testimony. And then I knew it was true, but it continued to grow. And what you have to do to get that is, first of all, to desire it. And as I explained earlier, I, when I was your age, I don't think I had the level of desire that I wish I had had. We desire it, and then we do our best to keep the commandments so the Lord can fulfill for us that promise that if you keep his commandments, you will come to know that it's true. And then you study the scriptures 
which are a personal Urim and Tummim. You know what the Urim and Tummim was in a general way? It was an object that was used to facilitate We know it in modern times to what the prophet Joseph Smith and others who, who saw it and saw it in action and told And you, you seek for revelation, and your scriptures are impersonal to your own thumb to help you receive it. It's been my experience through my life as I've that when I read the scriptures and I pray before I read, and I always do that, you probably have a rule that before you eat, you have a blessing, asking the Lord to bless the food to nourish your body. Well, I have the same principle before I take spiritual nourishment. I don't pray before I read the newspaper or watch television. But before I read the scriptures, I pray and ask the Lord for His Spirit to help me understand what I'm reading. And in that way, the scriptures can be a personal urban thumb to. So you desire, you keep the commandments, and you read the scriptures, and then you listen. Because revelation comes not as Alma the Younger got it, with an angel to hit you over the head and paralyze you and knock you out. And that was a big, big deal. But in my experience, revelation comes in a still, small voice. The Lord doesn't shout, He only whispers. If you're listening to rock music, or if you're angry with your family, or if you're all brought up for one reason or another. And of course, if you're breaking the word wisdom, getting into the drug culture and those kind of things, you can't hear that still small bit. You hear it when you pray and study the scriptures. When you go to church, do your duty, partake of the sacrament, then the still small voice will communicate with you. That's my experience how to have the result that Alan and the Younger have. Elder Oaks here is saying this. If you caught that in the middle when the guy was stepping close to where the recording was taking place, this young lady asked, how do I have an experience like Alma the Younger where I get to see a, a uh, spiritual messenger sent from God? And Elder Oaks clearly says to this young lady, like, your expectation is too high. God has given a few of those events in the scriptures, but I haven't experienced that, Elder Oaks says. He goes, I'm not aware of anybody in the First Presidency or the Quorum of the Twelve among my brethren who have experienced that. Like, that's not the experience we're having. What we're having is this softer, gentler nudging of just spiritual, what we would call inspiration, coming slowly over time that has ar- helped me to arrive at my testimony. I, I, If somebody were to ask me 15 years ago, what makes the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve prophets, seers, and revelators? I would have clearly articulated a position that these men 
are special witnesses, and I would have defined that term a certain way, that they are special witnesses in that they have communicated directly with God and with his messengers so as to be different than any other person in their religious experience on the earth. And what I've come to understand, and we'll get into this further, is that if you listen to Elder Oaks here today, you're going to realize that he is clearly teaching that that's not the case. That these men are living on gentle, inspired encouragement and nudging, just like the rest of us. Here's the second quote. Another claim we sometimes hear is that current apostles have no right to run the affairs of the church since they do not meet the New Testament standard of apostles because they do not testify of having seen Christ. The first answer to this claim is that modern apostles are called to be witnesses of the name of Christ in all the world. Doctrine and Covenants 107.23 This is not to witness of a personal manifestation. To witness of the name is to witness of the plan, the work, or mission, such as the atonement, and the authority or priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which an apostle who holds the keys is uniquely responsible to do. Of course, apostles are also witnesses of Christ, just like all members of the church who have the gift of the Holy Ghost. This is because the mission of the Holy Ghost is to witness of the Father and the Son. So Elder Oaks here is... Like, again, let him say what he says and hold him to what he's saying. Don't try to figure out some kind of mental gymnastics. Don't look for some loophole. Don't say, like, he's just trying to couch his words. No. Allow him to be speaking directly on what he's speaking to. What he says is that modern apostles are very different from ancient apostles. Modern apostles are witnesses of the name of Christ. Whereas ancient apostles, he seems to be implicitly saying, are witnesses of the physical resurrection manifestation of some sort of the Savior himself. So he is, he is creating a dichotomy. He says, look, we're modern apostles. Our job is to be witnesses of his name, which indicates that ancient apostles were witnesses, had some kind of manifestation of the physical Christ. He then says as modern apostles, what that means to be special witnesses of his name is we are to testify of his plan, his work, his, um, his mission, his authority, and the keys that we have. None of those have anything to do with any kind of physical appearance of a heavenly messenger. I think we have to just spend some time just letting ourselves let this kind of soak in. He says, yeah, we're witnesses of Christ, but only in the same way that all members of the church are witnesses of Christ through the Holy Ghost. Now, when you water down his witness of the physical resurrection of Jesus and that Jesus is a real person who died on the cross and rose on the third day and he, like his level of, of certainty in the physicalness of that, when you realize that is the same 
as your and my certainty of the physicalness of that, when you realize that Jesus isn't showing up in the room and Jesus isn't talking to these men face to face, that it is only the gentle nudgings of the Holy Ghost, then then I think it completely alters how we perceive prophets and how we perceive Mormonism and and how we perceive our paradigm within our tribe and stepping back outside outside our tribe and seeing how all of this works out. I want to finish with a last quote from Elder Oaks, which I think drives home my point. Here again is Elder Oaks. I think I can take one more question. Thank you, Elder Oaks. Uh, my name is Andrew Evans. I have a degree in international relations, but not from here. I went to Oxford. Um, regarding social warfare, like you said, uh, less than a year ago, right here in Washington, D.C., my friend killed himself. He was Mormon and gay. You've gone on record saying that the church does not give apologies. Does religious freedom absolve you from responsibility in the gay Mormon suicide crisis? I think that's a question that will be answered in, on Judgment Day. I can't, uh, I can't answer that beyond what has already been said. Uh, I know that, that those tragic events happen, uh, and it's not unique simply to to the question of sexual preference. There are other cases where people have taken their own life and blamed a church, my church, or the government or somebody else for their for their uh, taking their own life. And I think those things have to be judged by a higher authority than exists on this earth. And I'm ready to be accountable to that authority. But I think part of what my responsibility extends to is trying to teach people to be loving and civil and sensitive to one another so that people will not feel driven. Whatever the policy disagreements, whatever the rules of a church or the practices of a church or any other organization, if they are administered with kindness uh, at the highest level or at the, the level of the congregation or the ward, they won't drive people to take those extreme measures. That's part of my responsibility to teach that. And beyond that, the rightness or wrongness, I'll be accountable to higher authority for that. That's the way I look on that one. And nobody is sadder about a case like that than, than I am. I want you to picture for a moment the dichotomy here of Abenadi and Elder Oaks. Abenadi stands before King Noah. He's being questioned. Abenadi asserts his certainty of what is right and what is wrong because it is God who has spoken to Abenadi and has called him as a prophet and spoken to him directly. Again, we're talking ancient prophets. When we look at Paul or Peter or Moses or Noah or Isaiah or Nephi or Mormon, how would they have handled this question as ancient prophets, seers, and revelators? And when you fast forward to today, when somebody asks Elder Oaks, Elder Oaks, does religious freedom absolve you from the responsibility, being responsible for the suicide epidemic that is happening right now within Mormonism, within Utah? Elder Oaks' response is, I have to answer on Judgment Day. One way or the other, whether I was right or whether I was wrong. He says, I can't answer that. 
He says, I'll be judged by a higher authority. He says, I'm ready to be accountable to that. He says, whether it is right or it is wrong, he will have to answer for that at some future point. And what I'm saying is that if, if modern prophets were like ancient prophets, then he could have gotten an answer for that anywhere along the way. Like for him, for him to say like something's happening and one perspective is to see this as this atrocious, damaging, hurtful, harmful thing that in some ways this questioner is, is at least throwing the accusation out saying like, this is one possible paradigm. Are you accountable to that paradigm? And Elder Oaks is saying, essentially, I don't know. Like I'm doing the best I can. I don't know. I don't know if it's right. I don't know if it's wrong. I think it's right. I'm going to answer for it on judgment day. The point being is that Jesus, if modern prophets were like ancient prophets, Jesus could tell him any step along the way and likely would that what he is doing is atrocious. If it's atrocious or he would tell him it is right. If it is right. But Elder Oaks is making it clear that outside of his own personal opinion, he doesn't know. He doesn't know. And I simply want to close this episode that once you hear those three, you have to make those three quotes by Elder Oaks. You have to make a huge difference of your thoughts inside your head of what is a prophet in this modern dispensation. I want to finish with one last little thing. This is Richard Rohr defining prophets. He goes, honest and humble, self-critical thinking is necessary to see one's own shadow and usually well-hidden narcissism. Only when I encounter my shadow do I realize my biggest problem is me. He says the Hebrew prophets are in a category of their own within canonical sacred scriptures of other world religions. We do not find major texts that are largely critical of that very religion. The Hebrew prophets were free to love their tradition and to profoundly criticize it at the same time, which is very, which is a very rare art form. In fact, it is their love of its depths that forces them to criticize their own religion. One of the most common complaints I hear from some Catholics is you criticize the church too much, but criticizing the church is just being faithful to the very clear pattern set by the prophets and Jesus. I would not bother criticizing organized Christianity if I did not also love it. There is a negative criticism that is nothing but complaining and projecting. There is a positive criticism that is all about hope and development. The dualistic mind presumes that if you criticize something, you don't love it. Wise people like the prophets would say the opposite. The Hebrew prophets were radical precisely because they were traditionalist. Institutions prefer loyalist and company men to prophets. None of us want people who point out our shadow or our dark side. It is no accident that prophets and priests are usually in opposition to one another throughout the Bible. Yet Paul says the prophetic gift is the second most important charism for the building up of the gospel. And now, and note how often the text says it was the priest, elders, and teachers of the law who criticized and finally condemned the prophet Jesus. Interestingly, I have never heard of a church called Jesus the prophet in all the world. We do not like prophets too much. Human consciousness does not emerge at any depth except through struggling with our shadow. It is in facing our conflicts 
criticisms and contradictions that we grow. It is in the struggle with our shadow self, with failure or with wounding that we break into higher levels of consciousness. People who learn to expose, name, and still thrive inside the contradictions are people I would call prophets. As I reflected after the United States presidential election last fall, it seems we are in need of courageous prophetic teaching at this time. Both parties showed little or no ability to criticize their own duplicitous game of power. I suspect that we get the leaders who mirror what we have become as a nation. They are our shadow self for all to see. That is what the Jewish prophets told Israel both before and during their painful and long exile. Yet exile was the very time when the Jewish people went deep and discovered their prophetic voices. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others speaking truth to power, calling for justice. There is every indication that the U.S. and much of the world is in a period of exile now. The mystics call it a collective dark night. The prophetic message is not directly about partisan politics, which is far too dualistic. It is much more pre-political and post-political, which has a huge social political implications that challenge all of us on every side. Those who allow themselves to be challenged and changed will be the new cultural creative voices of the next period of history after this purifying exile. May the Lord warm your shoulders. God bless you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Taking out my issues never here